Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 174 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the relationship between Halloween and horror, and I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Lisa Morton. She's the president of the Horror Writers Association and the author of numerous books, stories, and screenplays, including the Stoker award-winning stories Tested and The Lucid Dreaming. Her short story Sexy Pirate Girl appears in the recent Halloween anthology October Dreams 2, and she's also the author of the nonfiction books The Halloween Encyclopedia and Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Dave. Thanks. And also joining us today is best-selling author, editor, and filmmaker John Skip, who's one of the directors of the new holiday feature film Tales of Halloween. He was part of the splatterpunk wave of the 80s, and his 1989 anthology Book of the Dead played a huge role in popularizing zombie literature. His short story The Spirit of Things appears in October Dreams 2, and he's also editor-in-chief of Fungasm Press. His newest book is The Art of Horrible People. So, Skip, welcome to the show. Hi, good to see you. <laughs> and finally, we've got John Langan, who you may remember from our panel on Haunted Houses back in episode 121, and our panel on Subterranean Horrors back in episode 99. He's the author of the Haunted House novel House of Windows, and the short story collections Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, and The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. He also has stories out in the new anthology Seize the Night, edited by Christopher Golden, and The Monstrous, edited by Ellen Datlow. So, John, welcome back. Thanks very much, Dave. It's great to be back. Okay, and so let's start with Lisa, who's a real expert on the history of Halloween. And so I'm just curious, Lisa, how did you get started on this path to becoming a Halloween expert? It, this always sounds awful because it was really by accident. Um, I was working with a publisher and we had done a film book together. And they said to me after we finished that book, um, you know, is there anything else you'd like to do? And I looked at their current catalog at the time. This was back in the early 2000s. And they had just published a Christmas encyclopedia. So I, in my vast naivety, wrote them back thinking, oh, this would be easy and said, hey, how about a Halloween encyclopedia? And they said, great. And uh, three years of my life later. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. So, I mean, were you a big fan of Halloween, or I mean, what was I was. Your... Yeah, I I love Halloween. Um, one of the reasons I actually suggested myself for that job in the first place was that I had been collecting um, vintage Halloween party pamphlets for a while. That was, believe it or not, a huge deal in like the 1920s and 1930s. And I just love these little booklets. They're full of these great graphics and weird little stories and tips and things. And I thought, oh, yeah, it'll be easy to write a book based on this. <laughs> so, like I said, three years of my life later and many, this was back in the days before Google Books. Wow. So it was lots and lots and lots of trips to libraries. Huh. And so do you have any memorable Halloween experiences? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I loved Halloween. I grew up here in um, L.A. I'm a native, and we I kind of think of the 60s as the golden age of trick-or-treat. Um, and yes. I loved, yeah, I loved going out on that one night a year in my costumes, and we would put tons of work into making these elaborate costumes. Um, my dad is a hunter. And one year in the 60s, there was a show called It's About Time that was on that all the kids loved. And I wanted it was it had cave people in it. And I wanted to be a cave woman. So we made an actual cave woman outfit out of an honest to God deer hide. Oh, wow. And uh, that was one of my favorite Halloweens. Um, I, I, I was so small at the time. I was like six or something that I couldn't even carry a big wooden club. So I had a little plastic wooden club in my deer hide outfit. Yeah, you don't give big wooden clubs to tiny children. <laughs> Especially I mean, not when they can't even lift them. <laughs> that, that's the point. Hmm. Well, well, Skip, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with Halloween? What was kind of what kind of things did you do? Wow. Okay. Well, I grew up in Argentina in Buenos Aires uh, for many of the the formative years, and uh, kind of missed it. So I I would celebrate Halloween by reading an extra creepy magazine or. Uh, or Pan or Fantana book of horror stories. Um, but when I got back to the States in 1970, uh, I kind of landed in the middle of, of, of the hippie scene in Arlington, Virginia. So uh, uh, Halloween uh, 
Halloween was pretty trippy <laughs> for me. <laughs> Halloween was, you know, again, like uh, a bunch of us uh, sneaking off to see Night of the Living Dead at the Biograph Theater uh, because I had heard that there were people who actually got eaten in it. And, uh, and that was very exciting. So, yeah, I mean, for me, Halloween didn't really take off aside from going to crazy parties until I had my own kids and then taking them out trick-or-treating and decorating the house and decorating the lawn and uh, standing in the lawn dressed up in a costume to then jump out and make children go. <laughs> uh, um, you know, that, that's when it really, really kicked in for me. Huh. Well, how about John Langan? What was your background with Halloween? So that was Skip jumping out at me. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct, sir. I, um, um, yeah, I, for me, growing up in the, in the 70s, I guess, into the 80s, I mean, it was the, um, I think of it in some ways as it was the golden age of the highly flammable Halloween costume. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you used to get these, they would come, you, they would come in these little boxes with, uh, with a clear plastic window that let you see the the mask that, that you would rubber band onto your head, and mm -hmm. then a, a, an outfit uh, that was supposed to sort of a pullover, I guess, um, like uh, overalls, I guess, right? Except they were made out of this this, this highly flammable material, and and sometimes they looked like you know Batman's costume or whatever, and then sometimes they had like you know sort of a picture of Batman on the Batman costume, say. Mm -hmm. um, but we, at the same time, I mean, the costumes that I remember the best were the costumes, you know, Count Dracula or something like that, where I actually just got a suit and made myself up as, as Count Dracula. Um, and it's true that, that when, especially when my younger son was born, um, Halloween took on all sorts of, of new meanings uh, for me. My, my wife and I, at the time, my, my son was in um, a daycare center. And some of the kids lived in Kingston in the, the nearest city to us. And uh, their parents said to us, oh, we don't really take our kids trick-or-treating. It's a little too dangerous. And, uh, and my wife was, was just scandalized by this. And she was like, this will not do. And so we had to set up this <laughs> whole kind of haunted walk in our backyard, um, which we then continued um, really until last year. This is the first year that, that he's a little older now. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I want to <laughs> hang out with friends instead but but yeah every year we had to come up with this elaborate kind of narrative and and then a, a series of um decorations and and uh tasks for the kids to perform that related to you know getting something to do with frankenstein's brain or the mummy or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah that took it to a whole new level huh. well i mean so john you mentioned it being dangerous to go out on halloween and certainly i was it was pretty scary going out on Halloween when I was a kid. I can remember this time I was out with my babysitter and these kids threatened us and he had to tell them that convince them that he knew karate to get them to leave us alone. Mm -hmm. And people, I mean, our house was kind of in the center of a lot of, there were a lot of kids in our neighborhood. And so they would always smash all our pumpkins and egg our house and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just curious. Did you guys have experiences like that? Like Skip, did you ever, have you ever had any scary uh, or threatening Halloween experiences? I, I totally got my ass kicked by uh, drunken jocks on Halloween in uh, ninth grade. Yeah, they 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 dragged me over a fence by my long hair and kicked the hell out of me. Uh, so that was kind of scary. But uh, uh, other than that, um, no, I thought I thought trick or treating was great. The weird thing is, okay, so I w I got back to the states in 1970 and. It was right about that point that uh, the razor blade in the Apple phenomenon started to take off. I think a lot of people terrified by Charles Manson uh, and uh, uh, basically thought hippies were scary and, uh, and didn't want their kids uh, out on the streets where the scary hippies would be. And it really changed the tone of it. it. The 60s was so much more innocent. It was ridiculously more innocent. And uh, th that, was, that was pretty much the pivot point. Was, I was talking with my girlfriend about this yesterday, and she was telling a story that when she was a kid, she was going trick-or-treating, and there was this elderly guy, and he gave them all apples that he had probably paid a, a lot of money for. Right. And as they're walking away, still within queer earshot of this guy, one of the moms says, throw those out as soon as we get home. They might have razor blades in them. <laughs> you know, you could just cut the apple open and see. You don't have to like bite straight into it. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lisa, what do you think about this whole 
threatening aspect of trick-or-treating? I think it was a massive conspiracy by baby boomers to take the holiday back for themselves. Um, mm. You know, that, that came about in the end of sort of towards the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. We started to hear all of these stories of the, the razor blades in the apples. And then we get the tampered candy, right. um, the poison candy handed out by anonymous psychos. Well, the truth is that there is not one single case on the record books of either of these things happening, not one. Um, there have been children who've been harmed by these things. They were almost always relatives. Um, the mm. famous one, of course, being Ronald O'Brien down in Texas, the guy who was nicknamed the Candyman, who poisoned his own son out of an insurance claim. Um, and this became a huge urban legend that got passed around a lot. It to me, it's it's no coincidence that it happens at the same time that the baby boomers who had loved trick or treat as kids were becoming adults, and I think they didn't want to give it up. And there were a lot of things in the air that were sort of combining to make sure that they took the holiday back as adults. Um, what did they do with it when they got it back as adults? This is really fascinating. They uh, they turned it into the haunted attractions industry. Ah. Uh, they started spending billions every year on doing up their front yards with, uh, you know, the decorations that you can buy now at every store. So, yeah, I mean, it was a huge turnaround in the 70s and 80s. It went from being a holiday mainly for kids to something for adults. That's really interesting. Well, Skip, I mean, uh, Lisa just mentioned this thing of people doing elaborate lawn decorations for Halloween. And of course, that makes me think of your short that just appeared in the movie Tales of Halloween. You want to say a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, Tales of Halloween is this new film, uh, anthology film, 10 short films by 11 directors. And the short that I did with uh, my co-director, Andrew Cash, is called This Means War. And it is about a pair of neighbors who live across the street from each other who are both ha home haunt enthusiasts. One guy, played by the great comedian Dana Gould, his name is Boris. Boris is a traditionalist of the uh, uh, universal classic horror uh, uh, delineation. He, he basically, he, he does like German Expressionist weird trees and a mausoleum and tombstones with James Whale and, and uh, uh, Max Turek and people like that on them. And then all of a sudden, Dante moves in across the street, and he's more from the Rob Zombie school of of gore and, you know, intestines and, you know, tits in a bucket and just horrible stuff. And, um, <laughs> and they are, of course, natural adversaries in the, uh, in the, uh, cobra and mongoose sense. And, uh, and it all escalates you know, in, into hilarious doom from there. And, uh, it's based entirely on the, the home haunt situation here in Southern California, in Burbank in particular, uh, where these people are always constantly trying to outdo each other. I mean, displays made by people who work in the special effects industry. So they've got these insane animatronic displays and, and wild stuff. And uh, we wanted to play with that while at the same time poking fun of the loud versus uh, uh, quiet uh, debate that remains raging to this day in the horror genre. Yeah, you know, I went to school in L.A., and so, so I, I saw in Venice, there was this one haunted house I saw. It was, I mean, they must have had thousands of dollars worth of uh, plastic spiders and toothpicks <laughs> and stuff like that. It's, it's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Boney Island uh, in a little while. Uh, evidently, they have more uh, animatronic skeletons than you can shake a stick at. It's like you know, walking into Ray Harryhausen's uh, nightmares. It's and amazing. Have Have you been to it before, Skip? I've never been to Boney Island. Oh, anybody who's listening, go look up BoneyIsland.com, and Boney has an E, but B O N E Y, and this is somebody's front lawn in Studio City, and it's a large lawn so you know we cut them a little slack but these guys have like a 50 foot haunted tree house a water show <laughs> um hand pub I, it's it really is absolutely astonishing what somebody is willing to do to their front yard for halloween yeah i gotta tell you the, the amazing thing is uh in making this film we had two days to shoot our entire uh, uh six minute segment and we had to build 
the both lawn displays in two days. These guys take like a month and plan for it all year. So what one of the most insane logistics was building two full lawn displays uh, at, in two days at the same time. And we had to start from scratch. We had to show the empty lawns in the first shots and build it up from there. So every shot that you see in the movie, there's somebody hammering right off camera, building the next part of the set that you're going to see, because that's what the kind of race against time we had. And so if people, uh, if they're if they're too lazy to go actually find one of these things in real life, or if you're listening to this and it's already after Halloween and it's too late, there is this documentary I just watched called The American Scream, where it Fantastic. follows some of the people making some of these, you know, these guys like Skip was just saying, who spent all year prepping for this uh, haunted house. And, you know, like like this guy's wife is saying, oh, we could buy a bigger house with the money you're spending on our haunted house. And he's like, no, but who's going to remember us in 30 years if we don't do the haunted house? It's, it's this really interesting look into that uh, subculture. Yeah. It's a great movie. Uh, see, John Langa, do you have any haunted house stories? Well, it's it's funny, actually, because there's a, a neighborhood that um, I've taken my, my son and his friends to the last, uh, I guess about the last three or four years now. And the centerpiece of the, of the neighborhood is exactly what Skip is describing. There were two houses that are kind of catty corner across the street from one another, and they try to outdo each other. And <laughs> they have... Um, you know, here we are in, in upstate New York, not, you know, not, not that rural, but still. And, um, yeah, one, uh, one tends to go in, in a, a more sort of thematically coherent direction. So they, and they tend to do a kind of a zombie sort of a, a thing, a, a large scale zombie thing in their house. And then the other guys, they've got a popcorn machine and, and they just kind of get whatever they can get out of the spirit Halloween store. And so. <laughs> they have the guy in the electric chair who's getting jolted or, or they have yeah. things that fly out at you and all that. And, um, and I, I would love, I would love to talk to them actually and to know, you know, do, do you guys like each other? Or, or because the, <laughs> the atmosphere is wonderful. The atmosphere is just this carnival atmosphere and it's, it's everybody's yeah. just having a, a, a wonderful time and there's a smell of a fresh popcorn in the air and, and, there's a laser light showing through the dry ice fog and, and mm -hmm. all the kids are just having, they, they, they will remember this. They will, I'll remember this. And the kids will all remember, oh yeah, those guys with their crazy haunted houses every year. It really does put the, um, and I see more of it. I, I feel like I see more, not, not competition that I'm aware of, um, between neighbors, but I, I certainly feel the, in, in this neck of the woods, from when I was a kid, um, we, my mom had a couple of little cardboard, you know, like a cardboard, uh, pumpkin with a black cat on it or something that she put up in the front window. And that was our right. Halloween decoration. <laughs> and that's, that's out the window. They, uh, um, we live on a dead end street, uh, with very few kids really aside from our son. And we still have to hang out our Halloween decorations. You know, it's, it's become much more widespread and much more elaborate. Okay, so I do want to talk about kind of the role of horror fiction in shaping Halloween. And I, I really didn't know, I had really no idea about this until Lisa, I was just reading your book. But you say that there are actually three short stories that really shaped our conception of Halloween. You have them as The Black Cat, Young Goodman Brown, and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I. if you look at those three stories, and they're all from the 19th century, um, they kind of embody the three icons of Halloween. Of course, we have uh, in the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the jack-o'-lantern, the black cat is fairly obvious, and young, young Goodman Brown is about a witch's meeting. Um, and it's interesting that only one of those three stories actually references the holiday. That's Young Goodman Brown, and it kind of refers to it in a sort of oblique way, but the reference is there. But these things became so repeated at Halloween throughout the 19th century and into the 20th, of course, that I, my theory is that they really helped contribute to the popularity of that imagery and those, those icons that became so associated with the holiday. Well, right. And you make the point that when that, when Disney adapted the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, they explicitly said it at Halloween. And most people today probably don't even realize the original story didn't mention Halloween. Right. Exactly. And I mean, John Lankin, I know you're a college professor. Do you ever, do you have any uh, experience with teaching these stories or anything? Yeah, no, I, I think that Lisa's absolutely right. I, I think that the, and what's fascinating is that, you know, Irving's The Sketchbook, which which has a legend of Sleepy Hollow in it, 
that's one of the first, that might even be the first American bestseller, like international bestseller. Um, and, and of course, it's still, it, once it gets into the movies, once, uh, once Sleepy Hollow gets into the movies, and now I guess on the TV, um, it just enters the culture. It's just part of our, our cultural DNA. Um, and it's funny to think, you know, I can, I can certainly remember being in, in, you know, grade school, middle school, seventh grade, something like that. And my teacher reading the black cat to us, oh, this is great literature, you know, and, and which post contemporaries, I'm sure, would have been scandalized to, to think that, that a, a bunch of, of impressionable children were, uh, were being read the black cat with its, its portrayals of, of, uh, marital, uh, uh, well, not what would you? Well, murder, basically. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying to think of a good, a clever euphemism for that, but no, just murder—the old hatchet to the head—and um, 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 and yeah, yeah, young Goodman Brown. I mean, I read that when I was a senior in high school, and it, it helps that these guys, or maybe it says something about us as a culture that these guys are at the center of of our literary tradition. You know, that that we um, we don't really read. Unless you're a specialist in like late 18th, early 19th century American literature, nobody reads Washington Irving, with the exception of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and, and, um, oh, the other one about the guy who falls asleep. Rip Van Winkle. Uh, Rip Van Winkle, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes the Spectre Bridegroom, but, um, you know, and, and Poe and Hawthorne obviously are, are, uh, uh, alive and, or unalive and well, or have you, you know, if you want to, uh, phrase that. <laughs> I mean, Skip, do you want to pick up on anything John was just saying there? Um, well, you know, the Black Cat is is such a freaky story. It's not just about horrible murder. It's about alcoholism and psychosis and obsession and all this other creepy stuff that definitely makes it great childhood reading. Um, <laughs> but but the, the thing that's really interesting is, so we start with that foundation, uh, kind of inspired by all the legends that everybody rode um, All Hallows' Eve up from in previous centuries and then it hits movies and then it hits TV. And now, uh, uh black cats, uh, jack-o'-lanterns and, and witches hats are, uh, met with chainsaws and, uh, uh, William Shatner masks. And, uh, you know, but my story, the spirit of things, which I wrote like what, 30 years ago, uh, the, the angry spirits come back because, uh, they were sick of seeing little kids in Casper the Friendly ghost masks, you know, the, and, and just how we kind of commercialized and, and cheapened the seasons and, and the real monsters were like, eh, now I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll show you how it's actually done. And uh, so I, I do sort of feel like it, it's been fascinating to watch how Halloween uh, has steered itself over the years. And Lisa, that three years was not wasted. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Actually, Skip, so I want to read actually the thing you were just talking about. I, I, I quoted that. I, I, I pulled that out here. So you say, um, this, this is the monsters. It says, they had read the shitty books. They had seen themselves turned into limp-wristed Bela Lugosius and carrot-headed James Arnises, heard too many bad actors get the spells all wrong and conjure up demons that couldn't scare the fleas off a pink-nosed bunny. Worst of all, they had seen All Hallows' Eve transformed into a ritual for posturing preening babies, had seen their glorious faces mocked and strung up in too many dime store windows. For far too long, but that was over. So, I, yeah, <laughs> I said that. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. Do you want to just like, like elaborate a little bit more on why the monsters are so upset? I mean, you said like we've commercialized it, and like what's so bad about Casper the Friendly Ghost and stuff like that? Oh, Casper the Friendly Ghost sucks. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is some lame stuff right there. But um, I, I think. Basically, you know, once you get into the, the, the weird, uh, whether you're going Lovecraftian and cosmic horror or you're talking about actual demons and uh, the devil and stuff, uh, all great and fearsome creatures hate to be diminished, you know, hate, hate to be uh, made like, smaller than life. And uh, I, I'm just guessing if any of them exist, it probably pisses them off. <laughs> Okay, well, so so get back to Washington Irving for a second. So, uh, Lisa, there's another quote I have here from you where you say, um, would Washington Irving, Robert Burns, John Carpenter, Tim Burton, or even Edgar Allan Poe be as widely known without Halloween? What about Stephen King or zombies? Has Halloween made the entire genre of horror more accepted and popular? So I was wondering if you guys could just talk about that a little bit. Like, his horror, does this Halloween 
mainstream the horror genre? I, I think it has, especially since 1978 when Carpenter brought out that little movie called Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. That thing was a nuclear bomb blast going off in both cinema and this holiday. Um, to me, that was really the pivotal point when the holiday went from being something that was, you know, fun and whimsical for kids to something that was genuinely scary. I, I really think it was a big turning point. It's it's one of the few films that I think has impacted a holiday and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And um, I think ever since that point, uh, a Halloween kind of became the Christmas of horror. It, it became the uh, day that it, it was so associated with the genre from that point on. And, and they've sort of fed off of each other. Um, and it's... Yeah, and uh, you don't really get that. What's weird is that there is no other holiday that has an association like that with uh, the fiction. I mean, Christmas doesn't have its own genre. Um, and on the other hand, um, mystery, for example, doesn't have its own holiday. So it's really interesting. You could sort of argue that the romance writers might have Valentine's Day. But even that, I think, is not as firm as uh, the interrelationship between Halloween and horror. I gotta completely agree with you. I was, I was about to jump in and say, "What about romance and, and Valentine's Day?" The thing is, uh, they do that all year round. You know, they 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 feed themselves these delicious romance stories, and, and then it all kind of goes on Valentine's Day, and everybody's passing out the hearts and stuff, and everybody who's not in love is going. Ah. But uh, um, Halloween has a whole mythology that is very. Halloween centric and it is I think it's the one day of the year that regular people are allowed to really enjoy horror and embrace that iconography even if that's not their lifestyle and then uh for a lot of the rest of us it's like yeah Halloween is pretty much every day at my house (laughs) well well, I wonder Skip is is that kind of a double-edged sword because uh sort of last October I had John Lankin and Grady Hendrix on for a horror uh, episode and at the end, Grady was joking, like, oh, well, I'll see you next year on Halloween, you know, when you bring out the horror authors. And um, and, and we sort of run into this where I'll, anytime I propose a horror topic, um, our producer, Johnny's like, hmm, maybe we should save this for Halloween. And I just wonder, like, is, is having horror so associated with Halloween, does that diminish the popularity of horror the whole rest of the year? I would say... Uh, between everybody thinking that Halloween, that horror is only for Halloween, and thinking that Stephen King isn't a horror writer, uh, <laughs> that's pretty much uh, uh, where it all breaks down. There, I, I think the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of people really like horror. Uh, they call it that, or uh, a- admit to it, except for on Halloween when they can put on the the crazy costume and say, "Hey, I'm cutting loose." Hmm. And we're also seeing more and more things where Halloween is going on throughout the year. I mean, you know, there are haunted attractions that are putting on stuff now at other holidays and a few that are considering going year round. And, um, and, uh, there's a, there's a great book called Halloween Nation by, uh, an author named Leslie Pratt Bannatine. It's a really good book that talks about how Halloween has infiltrated all of these pop cultures or subcultures like tattoos and music and, um, Absolutely. artwork. And so I think if anything, Halloween is moving out into the culture more and more. And, and, um, you know, horror is happy to tag along with that. I think you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you what, uh, horror conventions make Halloween happen periodically uh, throughout the year. And, uh, you know, anything from Monster Palooza, uh, uh, media cons where we're able to celebrate monsters. And that, that has spread all across uh, uh, the year. Uh, when you have uh, television programs uh, like The Walking Dead on the one hand and American Horror Story and some of the other ones, they kind of sustain that mood through the year and, and make it... Uh, horror, horror has massively infiltrated everything but in a lot of ways what happened is that the other genres took the special effects of horror the shock uh the visceralness the 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 nightmarish gritty imagery and they turned it into crime films and they turned it into crime stories and they they you know one of the most horrifying moments uh in horror fi- film from a couple years ago was in a science fiction film called uh uh was it Looper? Yeah, that there was the Looper, yeah, but the time travel movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the part where the guy is being taken apart remotely and he's walking down the street, but his... Yeah, his oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Son, 
Yeah, I mean, that is hardcore, serious horror imagery, but it's not in horror. And I think one of the biggest problems that horror has faced in many ways is that uh, everybody else stole our licks. <laughs> well, uh, John Lankett, I want to give you a chance to talk here about uh, Halloween, like the connection between that t- this time of the year and horror. I was just looking at your blog and you were saying that uh, you're like, oh, it's a really busy time of year for, for a horror author. Um, could you just talk about, like, is there a lot more demand for you uh, around Halloween? Yeah, well, well, this year there has been. Yeah, for the for the first year, um, I I just got a lot of invitations to do a lot of different things that that were all happened to be happening in October, and I just thought, well, you know, that's appropriate. Um, I'm I'm not going to complain. Um, I I think um, in the in the past the, there have been occasional attempts. You know, Ray Bradbury writes uh, the Halloween Tree, right? You know, his kind of survey, it's, I guess we'd call it a young adult novel now, I guess. Mm. Um, his sort of survey of Halloween traditions around the globe. And, and, and of course, Bradbury calls his, his, my favorite collection of his stories, The October Country. So mm. I, I think there, mm. there has been, there have been moments, um, in horror fiction before this where October slash Halloween has been, singled out or targeted by certain, uh, you know, writers working in the horror tradition to say, look, look, this is our time of year. Um, I, I think it's true that we, we probably see a spike in, in interest now. Um, that's fine. I'll take it. Because I, I, I think two things. Um, I think one, I'll always take a spike in interest if, if, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I okay, if it's Halloween, great, fine. If, um, if more people read my stuff, that's great. I, I, I believe that that spike in interest, some of those people will continue. Um, we may not get all of them, but we will get some of them. Um, and eventually we'll get all of them. That sounds really maniacal, doesn't it? But eventually we will get all of them. You and will then we'll rule the world. <laughs> exactly. Actually, you know, speaking of the Halloween tree, though, I just watched the, the animated version of that. And it was sort of talking about uh, Halloween going back to ancient Egypt. And I was just curious for Lisa's perspective on that. Uh, well, it, that's a little questionable. I, I think Bradbury took a little poetic license with that. Um, I mean, the Egyptians did have a Feast of the Dead. They they did light candles during that time. But that's kind of where any similarities begin and end. Um, I He was obviously going for a sort of emotional um, context to Halloween. So in, in that regard, it's completely accurate, but in terms of actual, like, time of the year and deeper meanings and so forth, he was, he was just going for the emotional connection. Okay. So we've mentioned, like, the Halloween tree and Legend of Sleepy Hollow and John Carpenter's Halloween as some of the top ranked Halloween related horror things. Is there, are there any other sort of classics of Halloween horror that people want to mention? Um, like Skip, do you have any any ideas? Well, uh, Creepshow, the George Romero Stephen King uh, anthology film, is my go-to Halloween film every year. Even though it doesn't explicitly mention Halloween, there is the jack o' lantern in the window, and it it is kind of all it it has that autumnal feel. Um, what is the name of Norman Partridge's amazing book? Dark Harvest. Uh, that's Dark the Harvest. one. That yeah. that is. That is my favorite piece of Halloween fiction. Uh, I just think it's, it's such a knockout. And then uh, the movie Trick or Treat, which came out a couple of years ago, has been much adopted. It is not my favorite movie, but every horror uh, film director uh, or fan that I know is, is gaga about this film. And, and it really is incredibly beautiful to look at. I, I got to be honest. I have a funny feeling that Tales to Halloween is a movie that people are going to watch every year for a really long time. Well, Trick or Treat and uh, Tales of Halloween are sort of similar anthology Halloween stories where there's different kind of creepy things going on in this town and the stories interconnect with each other and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, Tales of Halloween is uh, lighter spirited, which many people will see as a clear disadvantage and other people will... uh, really appreciate uh i mean it's still got like intestines and gore and you know veins in your teeth and such but uh it's there is a weird kind of innocence underlying a good bit of it and uh, i find that really fascinating it's one of the things that that makes me really uh glad to be involved with a movie that charming 
Uh, Trick or Treat is is a mean that is that is a mean movie. <laughs> that is some harsh stuff. Well, actually, in Trick or Treat, one one of the ideas that I I really liked in that was the idea that we light jack o' lanterns to protect us from the monsters. That I don't know, the monsters are maybe scared off by the uh, jack o' lantern faces or something. Yeah, fantastic. Lisa, is there any provenance to that idea, or did they just come up with that for that movie? Um, well, there's a lot of sort of folklore, modern folk belief about that. The, the, no, there, there really is no, I mean, you hear all the time this stuff about, oh, the ancient druids carved pumpkins to ward off evil spirits. No, okay, of course, the druids didn't know a pumpkin from a hole in the ground. They were <laughs> in Ireland, and pumpkins are native to the New World. But um, <laughs> the original use of carving these um, ghoulish faces in these gourds at, at Halloween time was probably for kids to scare other kids. Um, there really is no basis whatsoever behind the belief that they were carved to scare off evil spirits or anything. Um, the the ultimate legend behind the jack-o'-lantern is about a, a malevolent trickster named Jack who um, had cheated the devil out of taking his soul three times and so when Jack dies he uh, is denied entrance to both heaven and hell but the devil gives him this hell ember to light his way as he wanders around the earth and Jack puts it into this carved out um, gourd or turnip or pumpkin and so it's got that sort of association with the trickster um but in terms of an actual use to scare off things not other than kids not really <laughs> well no that was so striking to me you say in your book that originally the jack-o'-lanterns because they didn't have pumpkins in the old world were made out of yeah like turnips or apples and like th- things like like i can't even imagine trying to carve a jack-o'-lantern out of but that must they must have <laughs> been very dedicated to well, I'm assuming that. the turnips were much bigger in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They actually, I know they have something over there that's this giant thing called a mangle that they would carve faces into. And that, those things are about the size of pumpkins. But yeah, I have wondered, I have these guides from like 1898 that talk about making jack-o'-lanterns out of apples and cucumbers. Wow. And you're just like, wow. Yeah, they had serious time on their hands back then. <laughs> um. <laughs> Let's see, John, John, were there any other uh, Halloween classic kind of things that you wanted to mention? Well, I've, I've already mentioned Bradbury's October Country, um, mm-hmm. and, and I would absolutely, um, I don't know, underline, underscore uh, Norm Partridge's Dark Harvest. It's, it's such a wonderful short novel. Norm also has a, a collection of stories. Um, actually, I'm looking at it right now. Johnny Halloween, Tales of the Dark Season, uh, mm-hmm. which are more um, more Halloween-related stories. and, and um, yeah, in some way, Norm is, is, um, that's, that's a little bit of territory. I feel like he's really carved out for himself. So the mm-hmm. sort of Halloween tales, um, which are very much in, in, um, in an American tradition. So yeah, I, I would absolutely, um, and you know, as far as movies go, I can't help but think of, um, of, I can't remember if Pumpkinhead was set at Halloween or not, but somehow a film with a title like Pumpkinhead, it feels like you should recommend it when it comes to Halloween. It's a great um, Halloween view. I don't think it ta- has anything to do with, with Halloween at all, except yeah, for I, a guy I, named Pumpkinhead. But it is awesome. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Just seems like it, it just seems like one of those things, you know, that you should uh, you should mention. Well, I was going to put in a good word for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Lisa, do you have any anything else you want to add on this? I, In terms of stories, my personal favorite all-time Halloween piece is is again by Bradbury, but it's a short story called The October Game. Yeah. Um, which Bradbury, weirdly enough, kind of went on later on in, in his life to disown. But I that story is brilliant. And, of course, everyone knows it for the famous last line about and then some idiot turned on the lights. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great story. It It really captures the whole holiday even before this final horrific revelation. Um, and then, of course, yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas is is a no-brainer. You've got to talk about that if you're talking about cinema that relates to Halloween. And and again, I think that's one that um, so many Halloween fans have glommed onto. It's it's sort of molded the holiday a little bit over the last 15 years or so. Um, that the the image of the sort of skeletal guy with the stretched out limbs has become really um, mm-hmm. popular in relation to the holiday. And um, 
the design of that film is really great. The design so overwhelms every other aspect of the film, unfortunately, but it is certainly has shown up over and over and over in Halloween since the film was released. Absolutely. So wait, so why did uh, Ray Bradbury kind of disown that story? Uh, there was something about he felt it was kind of cruel or something, you know, and of course you read it and you go, well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the story kicks ass. October Country is the first Bradbury I ever read, and it is still my favorite collection as well. It's such an amazing book. Uh, I was also going to put in a good word for the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, it's a gorgeous tradition. Yeah, this used to scare me so much when I was a kid. (laughs) Especially around election time. (laughs) Remember that one with Kang and Kodos? It does not matter who you vote for. Well, yeah, the, uh, that always sticks in my mind where, yeah, where the guy's like, I'm going to vote for a third party candidate. He's like, and Kang's like, oh, and throw away your vote. <laughs> <laughs> so um, funny. Well, so, so Lisa, I also wanted to mention your, your story, Sexy Pirate Girl. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, uh, this was for October Dreams, too. And um, when they asked me if I would like to provide a piece of fiction for that i had just it it, it came right at this time that i had done like 10 interviews with newspapers and magazines where all anybody wanted to talk about was the rise of the sexy halloween costume um i'm still getting those i've just done like three this year um and a few years ago it was brand new it just suddenly like exploded onto the Halloween scene. And, and it's funny. I, I was actually going through a major website today of Halloween costumes. I was curious to see if it was still as prevalent as it was a few years ago. I looked at a hundred female costumes for Halloween. 75% were sexy in some way or other. Um, about another 18% were cartoon related, which left 7% that were neither sexy nor cartoons. Um, now, I don't have to tell you, you don't see this in the men's costumes. <laughs> I, I think that if you want to be sexy on Halloween, that is great. You know, I mean, it's to me, the costuming thing is about empowerment. It's about exploring a new identity. If you are a woman who feels like this is maybe your one night of the year that you can explore your own sexuality in this sort of safe um, con- uh, recognized night, that's great. Mm-hmm. But you should have other options. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us maybe don't want to be sexy pirate queen. We just want to be the pirate queen. <laughs> uh, just the pirate, yeah. Just the pirate. We just want to be a pirate. You, you know, you go get the men's <laughs> costumes and you can be a pirate or a policeman or a firefighter or whatever. You go look at the women's costumes and it's like sexy Ouija board. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, there was the pizza rat. I don't know if you guys saw that. The he, this this rat dragging yes, the pizza yes. who became a celebrity in New York. So, so there was. I saw a Halloween costume. It was sexy pizza rat, and it's like a rat with pizza on it, but uh, yeah, and sexy. Right. In in what sense? <laughs> Every well, sense. Well, you know, it's like a short skirt and leggings and like little ears right. and stuff. Right. Does he? She have like pepperoni on the leggings. <laughs> No, I, it I was a pretty lazy costume because I think they literally <laughs> just took a rat costume and then kind of like sewed pieces of pizza on it. So. Wow. <laughs> I love my other favorite for the last few years was sexy corn. <laughs> and this this literally was this little patterned dress that was patterned like a, a cob of corn. And you, you wore like a little headdress of, you know, the green husk. And yeah. it was just low cut. And, you know, uh, very high on the thighs. And so you were sexy corn. And, you know, the, it's like I said, the problem with that is it's, it's a weird conditioning thing for women. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of denying us the same empowerment opportunities that it's offering the men on Halloween. And I was so angry about that a couple of years ago that when I, they came to me and said, would you do a story for this? I thought, yes, and that's what I'm going to write about. Um, and I was particularly angry about the fact that some of these costumes are marketed to very young girls. Right. Um, they don't call them sexy. They call them naughty. Yeah. And I, they are marketed <laughs> to kids as young as six. Wow. You know, yeah, that, when you have a, up. yeah, that's really fucked up. When you have a six year old girl, you know, whose, whose parent is going to buy them naughty leopard or something. 
Um, and that's sending a pretty weird message to a very young child. And, and these things were marketed even more obviously to the older girls, the, you know, the teenagers. Um, and I found that very disturbing that it's almost like these girls didn't even have a chance to discover the identity they wanted before they were slammed into this sexy thing. So that's really what that story is about. May I say that I just wish there were sexy corn costumes for men? <laughs> yeah. I mean, totally. If 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 I can go as a sexy corn cob this year, uh, I I might have to do that. That's a very exciting concept to me. <laughs> I just want to show a lot of leg. <laughs> John Lang, do you have any any thoughts on sexy sexy corn? <laughs> I was just picturing Skip in the sexy corn costume. It's, it's pretty hot. I really short-sorted my brain. Yeah, <laughs> I short-sorted my brain. No, I actually, I, I, um, yeah, I, I think, thinking about about all this, like you know what Lisa's saying about um, kind of baby boomers hijacking the holiday or taking the holiday for themselves, and and because I'm thinking it's it's true. When I was a kid, I remember my dad didn't dress up, nor did my mom. I wouldn't have minded, you know, if they wanted to. That was fine, but. It very much was a holiday that was for us as as kids, and you know I can remember when I was a kid there was something about being out in the dark, going from house to house, um, and the night was just you know kind of vast and 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 expansive around you, and and the the streets were were full of of yeah superheroes sure and and um, all kinds of of crazy costumes, but um what does seem to have happened in in more recent years i mean you can go to a haunted house like a haunted house attraction and get like the uber scare kind of thing but a lot of yeah a lot of the costume options that you see and it's true especially for for women and for young women it is it's sexy this it's sexy that and it's i mean maybe once upon a time that would have been daring in its own way or transgressive in its own way but what I love about Halloween, that sense that we're in, and what I love about horror, I guess, in general, that sense that we're in, in touch with these things that we don't normally like to talk about, you know, like death and, and decay and loss of control and, and all that, what happens to you when you die and, and, and so on. Um, all of that stuff, um, I feel like it's kind of shunted aside, you know, if you have the sexy costume, because sexy isn't scary anymore. You know, maybe once upon a time it was, and again, mm. I'm sure that for some kids it might be, but I think for, for most of the people who are dressing up in the sexy costumes, it's this way to kind of like domesticate the holiday. It's this way to say, oh, it's you know, a chance for my inner bad boy or bad girl to the sexy corn to, to break out. <laughs> and I, I think that's actually kind of a loss. I, I think mm-hmm. that that's, um, I think that you're losing touch with something, you know, not to sound all, all mystical or whatever, but yeah, with these kind of profound, you know, subterranean currents in the, in, in the culture and even in yourself and, and, um, you know, be a sexy pirate some other day, you know, be a monster for Halloween. <laughs> Actually, John, what you were just saying reminds made me wonder. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have kids, so I'm kind of disconnected from that whole world. But I hear all this stuff about helicopter parents and overprotected kids. I just wonder, do kids even, are they even allowed to go out on Halloween unaccompanied? Or is that a thing of the past at this point? Um, it, it varies. You know, my, my son and his friends now, last year, they kind of, there was a sort of a knot of parents and they kind of did these big loops, you know, out and away from us and then back to us. And I suspect that this year there's going to be even more of, of that going on. Um, and, uh, um, who knows what the, you know, what the years ahead will, uh, will bring. I mean, my, it's funny, my younger brother lives in, in, um, outside of, uh, Allentown, uh, Bethlehem in, in northeastern mm. Pennsylvania. And they actually have a designated trick or treating night. Um, you don't go on Halloween. Um, you go on whatever the nearest Friday is to Halloween, which my brother, God bless his heart, is like, this is fascism. I won't stand <laughs> for this. You know, it, and I agree with him. No, you should be going out on Halloween. If it's a school night, that's that's kind of the point that it's a school night and you get to go out and break the, the rules, as it were, and, and do this. But, yeah, no, there are some parents who are very, you know, stay very close to their kids and, and some who just are like, all right, I'll pick you up here in an hour. Um, and I, I, I guess I strive for the middle ground. Uh, I mean, Skipper, uh, Lisa, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I've read a number of sociologists um, discussions about this. And one of the great things about Halloween trick-or-treating for kids is that it is the one night of the year when children are allowed to be empowered. Um, the, the child is allowed to choose a new identity to go out into the night. Um, it's great, especially if the child is unaccompanied, you know. Um, I mean, I know nowadays it's very different from when I grew up. Parents are very scared now of leaving their children unattended. But when I was a kid, it was great because it was that one night a year when, when I would go out and I would just feel magical in that setting. Um, and it was, I think it, in, in some weird ways, it's almost like a self-esteem builder for kids. And, and it is too bad that we're losing that. And, and one of the things that's happening a lot is they are institutionalizing it. Um, as John was mentioning, you have these areas where they um, tell you what night and what times to do it. You can only do it for from six to eight is, is the case in a lot of settings. Here in LA, we don't have that, but we have things like, oh, no, no, take your children to the mall. Um, take your kids to the boo at the zoo where they have trick-or-treat stations. You know, that's not the same thing at all. No, it is that is something that your parents and that these um, corporations have set up. That doesn't do anything to make you feel empowered or free or creative. It's it's just it's more like one more thing that you have to do for mom and dad. So so the other thing I, I really wanted to talk about is you know when I was a kid there were always like a couple kids in your class who had the like really Christian parents who were like oh you can't go trick or treating because that's satanic or something like that. Oh yeah. And I didn't realize, I assumed that that was a fairly recent phenomenon, but um, Lisa, in your book, you talk about how this religious objection to Halloween goes back way, way into the past. Um, could you talk about that? Yeah, well, I, you know, the, the modern one, I'll, I'll talk about that first, is I, I think it stems from a historic misconception. Um, there was a, a, a historian in the 18th century named Charles Valency, and this guy was a surveyor who was sent over to Ireland um, by the Queen to map Ireland and so forth. And Valency goes over to the uh, Ireland, and he becomes obsessed with Celtic language and culture. And he proceeds to write hundreds of thousands of words down about this, and he publishes these books. And there's just one problem, which is that he is basically a complete fool. Um, <laughs> he just... He arbitrarily assigns his own bizarre meanings to things, and he just decided that Samhain, which was the name of the Celtic New Year's festival that we think Halloween owes much of its character to, did not stand for Summer's End, which is the generally accepted translation. He decided it was the name of a quote-unquote Celtic Lord of Death. Wow. And every single person at the time, completely discredited Valency. Um, there was a famous quote from a critic who said something about he's been responsible for more nonsense than any other man of the age. Um, so, nice. But these books were already published. They found their way into libraries all over the world. They were very popular. And I think that much of our sort of um, Christian idea that it celebrates the devil's birthday and so forth comes from that. They always refer to that oh, the Celts worshipped the Lord of Death on this day. Well, that all comes from Valency. So a lot of that is a historic misunderstanding. But um, yeah, there has always been tension on Halloween between these sort of pagan and Christian sides. I mean, that's, that may very well be where the holiday actually comes from. Um, there is a lot of uh, school of thought, and I belong to that school, that, that thinks that um, the Catholic Church instituted All Saints Day on November 1st to co-opt Samhain. Mm -hmm. um, and when that wasn't entirely successful, which it was not, in the 14th century, they come along, they add this second holiday of All Souls Day on November 2nd. And um, they were never really completely successful, I think, in stamping Samhain out. Uh, that that name still persists in areas of Ireland to this day. And the sort of um, macabre side of the holiday, I think, may come from Samhain. Um, so you do get that sort of pagan versus Christian thing going all the way back to the beginning of the holiday. Nice. What was that guy's name again? Charles Valency. What a dick. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, forget about killing Hitler. I'm going back in time and shooting that son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I, I may go with you if you do that. Yeah, that'd be fun, huh? Yeah, he was he was part actually, I mean, the only slack I will cut this guy is that there was a trend among historians at the time to uh try and relate words in different languages and create and and claim that these things had a base in some other language. So hmm. Valency was looking at a uh the name of a lord of death or something in a Hindu language and it was salmon and it looked kind of like Samhain and so I it, it was a popular thinking at the time. It was really mm. silly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like skipped. Have you ever run into people with this Halloween is satanic kind of attitude? Oh, of course. As a matter of fact, uh, the first story that we pitched to Tales of Halloween was about a Christian hell house, and uh, uh, where you go in expecting you know to see Halloweeny stuff, and instead they're showing you an abortion or a school shooting or uh, a drug overdose and saying, and that's how you'll wind up in hell. And then they'll have the devil going, ha, ha, ha. And then you get a chance to, to find Jesus. And uh, in our story, which we would still very much like to shoot, which is called Pie in the Sky, uh, the Christian hell house has actually been commandeered by Satan, who is uh, whacking gullible Christians in the back room as they go to meet their maker. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah. I can't uh, imagine why this wasn't approved. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing about that, huh? Um, Please do a Kickstarter for that, Skip. It's a nice story, isn't it? Yeah, well, I have to say, I just watched the documentary Hell House, and I think it was the scariest Halloween movie I've watched this whole October. Oh, uh, yeah. Just because, yeah, because there was such this um, kind of unearned certainty on the part of every single person in this movie that, that they're correct about everything. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> thanks uh, uh that guy i'm going to kill him back in in the past yeah yeah man i hate that guy <laughs> um so so uh so there's no there's no current plans to try to do anything though to to shoot this uh, hell house um movie that you were oh, talking about it's one of many films that that andrew and i are trying to get off the ground and uh, definitely because it's a, a short one. Uh, Andrew and I are talking about doing our own anthology, so maybe that will be part of that. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, I, I, I like making movies and, <laughs> and figuring out how, how to actually pull it off. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let if something happens, I will let you know. No, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, how about John Langan? Do you have any any experience with this kind of attitude? Oh yeah, there was a, there was a family down the road from us. They they moved in down the road from my family and I when when I don't know we were, I, I was probably like eleven or twelve or something like that. And and they were, um, I honestly don't remember what denomination they were. I, I but they sort of came and went with it. Um, and it had to do with whether the parents were, um, what kind of what the status of the parents' relationship to their parents, you know, the grandparents was. So I think when they were getting along with the grandparents, then there was no Halloween, there was no Christmas, there was no, you know, no none of this. And then uh when they weren't getting along with the grandparents, then there was Halloween, there was <laughs> there was Christmas. Um wow. and um it just always seemed awfully uh, I mean that kind of inconsistency seems seemed kind of cruel to me. I mean I do think it speaks to to longer term anxieties in American culture. Um and probably um, even in American Protestant culture, you know, there's, there's, you know, go back to the pilgrims and there's, there's very much this idea that this is the devil's country, you know, it's the wilderness, um, and that's where the devil lives. And, and none of these, you know, um, Thorovian notions of going out to Walden Pond or whatever. No, man, the Walden Pond is where the monsters are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a yeah. very fearful worldview, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, 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 it's riven by fear. Well, you know, these guys, um, man, I'm trying to think about this. And, uh, at some stage in the Protestant Reformation, I want to say it's in the 1600s, but I could be wrong. They propose this, this doctrine of, um, cessationism, which basically says that God has stopped performing miracles in the world. Mm -hmm. And so if anything supernatural happens in the world, it's now the devil. It has to be the devil. There's no other explanation. And when you do that, um, the world's a weird place, you know, all sorts of unexplained things happen. We all know about, you know, we look back in the Salem witch trials, whatever, you know, and, and 
And, uh, yeah, so, so you just have this, um, satanically or, or, or what would you call it? Satanically obsessed, I, I guess, right. uh, mindset that, that looks at, uh, looks, finds the devil everywhere. Um, and what could be, <laughs> what could be, uh, uh, an easier target, um, for, for that kind of investigation, that kind of anxiety than, than Halloween. I guess, I mean, I, I've heard of this happening where they can't have Halloween parties at schools anymore because one parent will have an objection to it. I don't know how commonplace that is, but I don't know. Lisa, have you, you, you must know about this. How, how, how common is that? I don't think it's incredibly common yet, but it definitely is happening. Um, there were a couple of schools that were in Northern California that a few years ago that I noticed I was looking it, and I stumbled on these entirely by accident that they had posted big things on their websites that said, we don't, we don't do anything for Halloween. Don't let your kids come to, to school in costumes. And, you know, it's not politically correct kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we seem to be getting whacked from two sides. I mean, on the one hand, we have the Christians who thinks it, think it's the devil's birthday. And on the other hand, now there's this new era of political correctness which um, is almost a weird puritanical thing quite often in its own. Yes, indeed. Well, that, that kind of makes me wonder what the future of Halloween is going to be, because I, I actually, um, one of the things I wanted to mention was you, you talk about the Star Trek episode, Cat's Paw, in your book. Right. And you say that um, this, this episode continually suggests that trick-or-treat is still a popular activity 300 years in the future. While I'd like to believe this might be possible, it's sadly unlikely and is really an obvious nod to the ritual's huge popularity in 1967. Right. <laughs> but so you don't think there's going to be trick-or-treating well, in the future? I should probably clarify what I meant by that, which is that um, one of the great things I love about studying Halloween is it, it is a holiday that constantly morphs. Um, I, a kid who was celebrating it a hundred years ago would, would not even begin to recognize the way we celebrate it now. It's completely different. It seems to me that it changes about every 40 years. Mm. And I think the holiday is here to stay. I think people will always need that, that night of creativity and empowerment and fun and stepping outside the boundaries. But uh, I think trick or treat will probably just, you know, at some point phase on out completely and we'll have something new that comes in and, and offers, I hope, the same kind of um, thing for kids. Well, it's funny because you were talking, we've been talking a little bit about how the, the baby boomers have kind of tried to claim Halloween now, but it used to be for kids. But then, Lisa, you say in your book that actually before that it was for adults and nobody really thought of kids at all with, in regards to Halloween. So maybe it'll kind of go back and forth or maybe it'll be the ho a holiday for grandparents or then maybe it'll be the holiday for robots. <laughs> I mean, but it'll, <laughs> it'll keep changing yep. them. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, let's see, John Langan, any anything else you want to add here? I love Halloween. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it makes me very happy that, that uh, it makes me very happy to be part of this, you know, to be part of this radio show. It, I mean, that mm -hmm. tells me something, right, about, uh, if, uh, you know, this is your annual October show, right, your horror show or whatever. It deals with Halloween. That's terrific. Um, and it makes me happy that uh, it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown is still on. There's mm -hmm. something about the that kind of the melancholy um, uh, vibe of, of that TV special that, that also gets at something about Halloween. And it makes me happy that they're also putting on The Nightmare Before Christmas because um, I can sing along to the songs now. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's a, have a good Halloween, everybody. Enjoy your Halloween. Uh, buy a yeah. horror novel. That would be good, too. Um, <laughs> or go to, go to a scary movie or, or rent a scary movie. Or, or And watch a scary movie, you know, if you've got kids. Show them some kind of, you know, show them Fred Decker's The Monster Squad or something like that. Something that's <laughs> relatively benign. But have that experience with them. It's it's a great thing to do together. You're here. John is actually, he's absolutely nailed something there, which is one of the great things about um, Halloween is is the, the way it creatively brings people together um, to share some of maybe these fears or to, to poke fun at these fears. I actually was interviewed um, last week by a reporter whose theory was that Halloween is now the time that families gather and it's no longer Christmas. Mm. Um, and I thought that was an amazing um, 
observation on that reporter's part because I think Christmas has become so much about retailing and it's so stressful <laughs> that sure. at least here in America, the idea of getting together with your family at some point is just like, oh God, one more thing I have to deal with. And, uh, you know, here in, in the U.S. with Halloween, it's still like, wow, I'm going to put up these decorations and maybe I'll go to a party with friends and maybe I'll stay home and hand out candy to my neighbor's kids and it'll be great. We'll all be together on this one special thing. Um, all right, cool. So that was great. Uh, but I think we have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Lisa Morton, John Skip, and John Langan. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was thank so much fun. This was great, Dave. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Lisa Morton, John Skip, and John Langan for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Miro74 in the UK, who writes, What an excellent podcast. Always well-researched and fascinating, no matter who is being interviewed. A must-listen. So, big thanks again to Miro74 for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Bassem Saad and Ash L. Simpson, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank Helmut Schmidt, who just increased his pledge to $5 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Aaron Locke, James Schoons, and Douglas Mercer, who all just made contributions via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, Tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.